0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of The Colin McEnroe Show. It was originally recorded on July 31st. 2019.
2: One of the things that always strikes me about uh, this show or doing a show like this one is the way we wind up learning about things that we never had considered or knew anything about. And uh, so I confess to you that I came to this particular topic, which is maternal mortality and morbidity, knowing Pretty much nothing. Uh, fortunately, I have a really good producer uh, who's also a former nurse. Uh, so that I know, may, may have allowed me to get ready for this very serious topic and one that has a lot of complexity to it. So we're going to talk to you today uh, about this problem. You know, most of the time, if some aspect of this problem gets discussed is probably infant mortality uh, or low birth weight babies or things like that. We tend to talk, perhaps understandably, uh, uh, about the infant, uh, but maybe not so much about the, the mothers and the statistics about the mothers. Uh, are going to surprise you. Uh, It is you maybe medically, once again, are not living in the country you think you're living in. So a little bit later in the show, we'll be talking to two midwives, uh, and we'll talk at the end of the show to a doula. We'll start right now, though, with Neil Shah, assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology and reproductive biology at Harvard Medical School, director of the Delivery Decisions Initiative at Harvard's uh, Ariadne Labs, and founder of March for Moms. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Colin. So I think we need to begin by defining two terms. One of them is mortality, maternal mortality, and the other one is morbidity. I think when people think of maternal mortality, if they think of it at all, they think of it as somebody dying in the process of delivery. But that's just one slice of the overall pie, right?
3: That's right. So when people see a lot of the shocking statistics about uh, moms who are dying in childbirth, they are often thinking about like an acute event. Um, like a catastrophe that happens in the moment of actually delivering the baby. And it turns out that about a third of the deaths that get counted happen in the week surrounding the birth, and two-thirds happen anywhere from, you know, recognizing the pregnancy through the first year of parenting an infant. Um, And if you think about it, that makes... Uh, sense in a lot of ways because it turns out that pregnancy for an otherwise young, healthy woman is like the body's first stress test. So it ends up unmasking things like diabetes and hypertension and high blood pressure. Um, And then the period after having the baby is one of the most vulnerable in any person's life. I mean, you're basically getting POW level sleep deprivation. you're probably trying to earn a living wage because we have no paid family leave in this country. Uh, In many cases, you're existentially terrified because you've got to keep a baby alive. And then if you're really on the margin of being, you know, well and unwell or secure and unsecure, uh, having a baby can push you over the edge. So, that's the totality of what we're talking about when we talk about maternal mortality.
2: And when we talk about morbidity, this is a much bigger number. Uh, it's, it's. I think for maybe every one of these deaths, there might be 700 or more of this other group of people who, what, experience life-threatening postpartum complications, or in some way, they don't die, but they they experience, uh, what, a, a severe health event. event.
3: Yeah, that's right. So you know, maternal mortality um, is the canary in the coal mine of a much deeper and wider problem. So you know, for um, every death, there's probably uh, up to a hundred cases of severe maternal mortality that are truly life threatening. Um, but for every death, there are probably thousands of cases of avoidable suffering from um, you know medical complications that were undertreated or. Um. Just honestly, social isolation, because it turns out not only is, you know, being an American mother more dangerous than it used to be, but it's also more costly and more isolating.
2: Um, in some of these cases, uh, although uh, the woman does, doesn't become a mortality statistic, she has something happen that she'll never get her full health back, right? Uh, a, a, bl- a brain bleed or something associated with this that isn't ultimately correctable? That's
3: right. So a lot of the causes of the morbidity that we're talking about are things like, uh, you know, significant hemorrhage, um, you know, infection, uh, organ injury, things like that. But, but yes, um, uh, in, in some cases it can lead to lifelong injuries.
2: So now let's get into the, the the rates of this. And so, what I think is surprising to people who exalt the U.S. healthcare system is that we have an unusually high rate for both of these things for an industrialized country. Tell us more about that.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, honestly, if you watch the presidential debates yesterday, I'm not sure how many people are truly exalting the American healthcare <laughs> system right now. And that's part of what makes us unique in the United States is that, uh, you know. For a developed country, we have real challenges around um, allowing people to access care, um, which we can get into. Um, But yeah, let's just talk about the problem. So an American mom today is 50%, 50% more likely to die in childbirth than her own mother was. Um, So, you know, roughly what that means is there's about 800 women per year who are mostly otherwise healthy and young who who die in the process of giving birth, Uh, and that's a number that has steadily increased... Uh, not as a statistical aberration or a blip, but steadily over time. Actually, for decades, we've been watching this rise, and it's only really now that we're coming to terms with it.
2: Right. Um, Just to sort of uh slightly disagree with one thing that you said. I spent 16 years on a commercial radio station where I either followed or preceded the Rush Limbaugh show. There's still a lot Uh of people in this country who who buy into that whole idea that we have across the board the best medical care uh, system in the entire world. So, yeah, the debate, I watched that debate, too. And there are people bringing up a lot of really important points. But, boy, there's a lot of Americans who still, they kind of salute that flag. We do it better than anybody else. Why would we ever change anything that we do?
3: There are a lot of people who, and I'd say most people, who are very attached to their own specific healthcare situation or they're very attached to their individual doctor where they have a relationship. Um, but uh, it, it really seems we're at a point in this country right now where there are so many super, superlatives uh, that are particular to the time that we're living in. It turns out, you know, this is the least affordable healthcare has been for the average American in a half century, uh, and it's the most dangerous to start or grow your family than it's been in a generation. Um, So that's where we are right now.
2: Now, this is a tough thing to study. I mean, uh, and um, the the minute you know that that our our rate is alarming, the minute you know that our rate uh, is worse than Iran or Lebanon or Turkey uh, or China, then you want to know why. Um, why would there be such a high per capita uh, rate of uh, either maternal deaths or m- maternal severe postpartum complications? And, and I, I would assume the why is maybe not that easy to get to.
3: The why is complex. I mean, part of it is that we hadn't even been tracking it. So part of the reason why this is such shocking news is that the CDC, um, for a while now, hadn't been systematically tracking maternal mortality as a statistic. Uh, there are a number of reasons for it, but uh, at the end of last year, at December 2018, um, there was a bill signed into law by President Trump uh, to address maternal mortality, and literally all the bill does is uh, have the CDC start to track this. Um, so the first thing to understand it is you just got to know that it's happening. Um, and then you really have to kind of unpack what happened on a case-by-case basis. So a lot of the efforts right now to address this are to set up these maternal mortality review committees. Uh, state by state that look at each case and try to really unpack what happened. Because it turns out that the death certificate uh, will write, you know, a medical diagnosis. But that's not really an explanation.
2: Right. You can say heart failure or something like that. but Yeah, it
3: turns out everyone who dies their heart stops. So there's a lot of cardiovascular stuff that gets on the death certificate.
2: So one of the things that we do here in this country, we'll be talking about midwives and doulas later in the show, but uh, we have a pretty strong medicalization, you could say, of all childbirth. The idea that all childbirth is uh, a medical event Uh, there's a a lean uh, towards having somebody like you, uh, an obstetrician, uh, involved in in every childbirth. Uh, This leads to a lot of other things, including uh, an awful lot of C-sections. Maybe you can just talk a a little bit, give us kind of your sense of that overall picture.
3: Sure. Um, So, you know, there are no silver bullets with this, but there are a couple of obvious truths, particularly when you take the United States and you compare it against, you know, all of the other countries that, do so much better than us, uh, often that surprise us. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, among those things are the fact that, um, you know, in our country, 90% of, uh, American moms are cared for by obstetricians and 99% of them are cared for in hospitals that functionally resemble ICUs. Um, so that's different compared to say the United Kingdom where 90% are taken care of by midwives. And, you know, underneath that though, uh, beyond, it's not really a matter of like who's superior, the midwife or the obstetrician. It's more about the services that every single mother benefits from and deserves. So
1: mm-hmm.
3: every woman in labor benefits from support, careful monitoring and coaching. Many also benefit from modern medicine, things like anesthesia and blood banks. And the truth is very few truly benefit from surgeons like me, but we've designed the system entirely backwards where, you know, surgeons like me are upfront uh, and then the support, monitoring, coaching stuff often gets left to the wayside.
2: Um, I, uh, in February, had a knee replacement and I was uh, home after a day uh, or after a night in the hospital. But then somebody came, uh, like a visiting nurse or somebody came uh, to my house with some regularity, but also physical therapist, and everybody took my vi- my vital signs were taken every day for at least two weeks. Um, I get, uh, in reading about this, I get the feeling that you know, I just had a knee replacement. I mean, somebody who's had a C-section, which I would regard as a much more invasive uh, and possibly complicated process, may not be getting that kind of aftercare. And that person is also presumably taking care of a small baby, which I was not doing.
3: Yes, Uh, all of that's true, Colin. So, I mean, first we should just point out, people can get hurt in the healthcare system in two ways. When we do too little too late, but also when we do too much too soon. And we see both with, C-sections, but on the whole, the C-sections is a too-much-too-soon problem. From the last generation to this one, uh, this is a surgery that we've started to do um, much more often. In fact, C-section rates in our country have gone up by 500%. There's no other healthcare service that has skyrocketed by anything even close to that. Um, So now it's the most common major surgery we perform on Americans. One in three Americans are born through major abdominal surgery. And when you do surgery, uh, you get into to surgical complications. It's the only way you can get a surgical complication. It also turns out that obstetricians like me are the only surgeons that routinely cut on the same scar over and over again, because most moms have more than one baby. Uh, So if you're like a neurosurgeon or a trauma surgeon or an orthopedic surgeon, uh, if your orthopedic surgeon had to go back and operate on your knee again, that would be a bad day in his work week. We don't like, you know, having to go through all that scar tissue again. Um, But for me, like that was just last night when I was on call. That's like a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and what that means is that, uh, every single time we do a C-section on a person, they become increasingly more complicated. Um, and the placenta, which is an organ that only exists in pregnancy, it's a big bag of blood vessels, it gets 25% of everything the heart pumps. If it gets caught up in that scar tissue, um, women can bleed, uh, a lot and in some cases to death. Um, and, you know, although we don't know exactly what's driving maternal mortality in our country, it's very possible that. Part of it is that we're doing too little, and part of it is that we're doing too much.
2: Um, I just want to uh, let people hear one of the, presumably one of the healthiest women in America, and also a woman who has access to uh, probably the ultimate uh, amount of resources. Talk about what a C section can do to your body.
1: I was so healthy. My pregnancy was so easy. Like, I didn't have any problems. But unfortunately, once I had the C section, everything from there, was pretty much
2: a nightmare. That's Serena Williams, uh, who would have gone into that process. As I say, as one of the healthiest people to go in there. So, so we, this is kind of what you're talking about, right? There's just an awful lot of things that can go wrong uh, if you have a C-section, and and so Dr. Neil Shaw, I'm kind of trying to balance that against the idea that we would be doing more. C-sections? Why would we be doing more of something if, in fact, it can be really complicating, even for a woman as healthy as Serena?
3: Well, you know, first of all, it's worth mentioning that, you know, C-sections can be life-saving, and that's Mm -hmm. what they're designed for. Uh, And there are a lot of really good reasons to do them. And uh, on the whole, uh, moms and babies are better off as a result of our ability to do it. But since the 1970s, when we had a 5% C-section rate, uh, and now we have a 32% C-section rate. That whole increase it has not benefited infants, and it's actually made moms, on average, worse off. Um, so, um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's tough. Um, and
2: and uh, there's also well, we might as well should we play the Beyonce one too? I mean, it's sort of it's kind of interesting that these are <laughs> two very very famous, very very wealthy African American women uh, describing this. So here's Beyonce.
1: It's my first time back home on the stage after giving birth, and it's hard. There were days that I thought, you know, i would never be the same. i would never be the same physically. My strength and endurance would never be the same. I had to rebuild my body from cut muscles. It took me a while to feel confident enough to freak in and give in my own personality in the beginning it was so many muscle spasms and just internally my body was not connected my mind was not there
2: So uh, if you watch the movie Homecoming, you know, she did eventually get back. But she has, you know, the ultimate amount of support. She can presumably line up as much support as she needs. Uh, Dr. Neil Shaw, I'm assuming for somebody who goes home and maybe there's already one or more other children living in the home. The woman's had a C-section. Her husband's going back to work or, or whatever. She's got a new baby. This is a dangerous time, as you suggested at the top of the interview, both physically and psychologically.
3: Yeah, it's tough, Colin. I mean, C-sections have become incredibly normalized. When one in three people get a C-section, um, you know, you can look around you and you'll see people. It's the most common surgery. And so, you know, the, the thing is that for an obstetrician or even for a family, uh, when you do the C-section, it, can, it will never seem like the wrong decision in the moment. Because if the baby comes out looking, you know, great, squirming around, looking pink, Uh, You think, well, it's a good thing I did a C-section. And if the baby comes out looking lackluster and uh, kind of depressed, you're like, well, that baby was sick. It's a really good thing we did a C-section. So it's good to be me. I'm always right when I decide to do it. And I think that's a big part of the challenge. Uh, But then afterwards, um, you know, often, and I think you also led with this at the top of the hour, we hear a lot about the well-being of infants, and we're only starting to have a conversation about the well-being of mothers because often there's a false choice between the well-being of the mom And the well being of the infant that mothers are presented with. They're kind of expected to put their own well being last in order to put their family's well being first. And as a result, you know, we do the C section, the baby looks okay, and then moms leave with the expectation that, you know, everything should be fine. But meanwhile, exactly like you described, they've got to uh, heal from a major abdominal surgery while caring for a newborn infant, which is incredibly difficult.
2: There, there is also a, a racial dimension to this. Uh, the, all of these things fall statistically disproportionately harder on the African American woman population.
3: Yes, that's probably the most disturbing thing about all of the maternal uh, health statistics in our country, particularly maternal mortality. Uh, that you know, uh, I mentioned that uh, an American today is fifty percent more likely to die in childbirth than her own mother, but. Uh, those odds are three to four times higher if you're a black woman compared to if you're a white woman, and this is irrespective of your education, uh, of your income, um, you know, your risk factor is how people perceive your skin color.
2: Um, uh, you know, in the next segment, we're going to be talking to two midwives, but I want to talk to you about this uh, dimension of it too. So presumably, uh, with some patients that you have, you might be inclined to say, you know what. You're a healthy person. Your pregnancy is so far proceeding in a healthy way. There aren't any warning lights flashing on the dashboard. You maybe don't need me as much as you need uh, a midwife. The problem with that is that Americans are accustomed to requesting what they think of anyway as the top of the line in any medical delivery system. So how does that conversation go?
3: Um, I think, you know, right now our system isn't well structured to give people options, which they deserve to have. Uh, in the types of providers and support they get, whether it's you know doulas or midwives or obstetricians, and ideally, actually in all cases, um, all three, um, and and you know labor and delivery nurses, we shouldn't leave them out, and lactation consultants. I mean, it turns out childbirth um, is a big, a big deal, and uh, you know um, people, Homo sapiens, have always benefited from having a team around them. It turns out childbirth has always been a team sport. Gorillas deliver their own babies. Uh, But human beings have always um, benefited from having other pairs of hands around. Um, And so I think the challenge is just figuring out how we work together as a team. And we really think through how uh, each person adds a lens of expertise. So, you know, I am good at surgery. That's what I'm trained to do. Um, Midwives uh, are much better than me at providing a lot of the support and coaching um, that are a big part of their, their model of care. And so there's a real complementarity there.
2: All right. So uh, first of all, we want to uh, thank you for this conversation. Uh, we're going to expand it into midwives and to Neil Shah, assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology and reproductive biology at Harvard Medical School, d- director of the Delivery Decisions Initiative there at Harvard's Ariadne Labs. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Colin. And uh, before we cut out here, uh, one thing that we sort of discover is, particularly with a show like this, there's people who miss the show uh, and they want to hear it uh, because it's maybe a problem that's bearing down on them or something that they've been really worried about. If you're too, if you're unable to catch this show when it's on at one or eight p.m. Uh, or you know somebody who wanted to hear it who didn't, it's easy to subscribe to our podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or whatever your favorite podcast app is. You can also go to our our website. Just play the audio of the show from there. That's wnpr.org slash
1: You're listening to a rebroadcast of The Colin McEnroe Show. It was originally recorded on July 31st, 2019.
2: All right. If you're just joining us, um, what we're talking about today is, well, I mean, we're doing something wrong. We're doing something wrong in this country uh, when it comes to the incredibly pivotal and crucial event of childbirth. Uh, And one of the consequences... Uh, or perhaps two of the consequences of the fact that we're doing something wrong, is that um, mothers die as a result of childbirth complications uh, at a higher rate in this country than in most industrialized countries. And our rate's going up, not down. Most places are, in fact, getting that mortality rate uh, down. But also, in the area of morbidity, there's another much, much larger group of of mothers uh, who, although they don't die, suffer life-threatening complications, postpartum complications, in 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 some cases, they don't really ever fully get their health back either. So we're doing something wrong. How could we do something right? We're going to talk about midwives right now. Uh, joining us right now, uh, Joan Combellic, uh, Certified Nurse Midwife for, for Women's Health Research and Women's Health Health Research Fellow at the Connecticut VA Health System. Uh, Sasha James Connorelli, uh, Certified Nurse Midwife and Lecturer at Yale School of Nursing. Uh, welcome to both of you. I think maybe just as we started the first se- uh, session, uh, Joan Combellic, with some definitions. We need to start this one with some definitions. So uh, for those of us who who don't know, Joan Kumbelik, what is a midwife? What do you have to be to be a midwife?
1: I maintain that we live in the only country in the world where that, in fact, is a very, very common question. So that's a great starting place. Just to take a long view, most midwives care for women um, throughout their through a lifespan from adolescence through reproductive health, through menopause. Um, That can include patient-centered, well-woman care visits that include cancer screenings, contraceptive use, and menopausal services. But what we're most known for, of course, is um, caring for women during the childbirth continuum of prenatal care, labor and birth, and postpartum care. And so the way a midwife is different, I think, from a physician, what we we like to think of about ourselves as kind of the special in protecting and promoting birth as a normal physiologic event, which in most cases it really is. And we emphasize using interventions only when they're medically needed, not electively. That's part of the problem that I think that you were bringing up in the last segment. Um, we emphasize continuity of care, and we emphasize more a model of care that is different, which has three major components. The woman as an active participant in decision-making and understanding and directing her own care, the midwife from a normalist point of view, and the physician from a more, the, the physician is really the expert in managing complications and doing surgery, as Neil pointed out. And so that triad. That spectrum brings a lot of skills and evidence and capacity to bear on helping a woman navigate her childbirth experience.
2: Maybe also, uh, Sasha, James, Connorelli, you can tell us a little bit more about how you get to be a, a midwife, uh, who ultimately decides. I mean, I th- most of us have some vague idea of how doctors and nurses get their training and education and who ultimately licenses or certifies them. How does that work for midwives?
0: So I am a certified nurse midwife and there are also certified midwives in the United States as well as um, certified practicing midwives. But for a certified midwife and a certified nurse midwife, our education is that we have a bachelor's degree. Most of us in the United States are nurses first. So most of us have a bachelor's in nursing and then go on to have a master's that specializes in midwifery. So that is an addition training uh, and education, of course, to have your master's degree. The difference is for midwives that are nurses first, we, we have that clinical training, sort of like physicians would have residency, but we have cl- clinical training as well as nurses. And then when you are in your uh, pra- process of becoming a midwife, there's more integrated uh, clinical training as well for the normal physiologic thought process of caring for Women from adolescence, as Joan spoke about, to basically um, to death. And so I. Our philosophy is just a little bit different than the medical model. We maintain that uh, that women, we expect that women are normal and healthy, and we are the experts in what is normal and healthy. And when there are identified issues, we then seek to be collaborative and care with other team members, as Dr. Shah mentioned, physicians, social worker, uh, having nurses on your team, uh, having lactation specialists on your team. Mental health workers on your team. So we have a trend to have a master's degree. Some of us go on, like Joan and I, to have our doctorate and to do even more uh, research and education in um, in this specialty of midwifery.
2: Joan, you know, you said that uh, this is the only country where you really do need to be asked that question and to answer that question of what is a midwife. Um, We know that in Europe, this is a much more common thing that Kate Middleton, both of her kids, I don't know too much about the royal family, but I think I'm saying this correctly. Anyway, that both of her kids were delivered by by midwives. Maybe you can give us a little bit more of a sense. I mean, how prevalent is it in other countries and how does that stack up against the percentage of U.S. births and pregnancies, too, that involve? a midwife?
1: Yeah, midwives are very common, and I'm kind of like um, calling out, so first of all, just to say also what's very different, and you touched on this, is that three, two to six times more women die in labor in the U.S. than in our peer nations. Canada, U.K., France, Japan, Sweden, those are all where um, maternal mortality is less than four per 100,000, and we're in the 24 per 100,000 range. If I can choose out just um, the Netherlands as a case in point, there are almost four times as many midwives um, as OBGYNs in that country. So they have a healthcare system that's completely flipped, where the majority of women are cared for by mid- with, a, with um, physicians acting as consultants for high-risk cases. And in this country, midwives deliver 8% of all deliveries and 12% of all the vaginal deliveries. So we're, we're a, a much more marginalized population. Um, and, but but the, also another element of that is just that the cost of care for better outcomes Is lower in those other high income countries than in the US. The average cost for births in the US is seven times higher, for example, um, than in the Netherlands.
2: Um, So, uh, I mean, another dimension to this, uh, Sasha Sasha James Connorelli, uh, would be insurance. Things tend to happen in this country uh, if uh, insurance reimburses, they tend to not happen if insurance doesn't recognize them. So what's the status of midwifery uh, vis-a-vis insurance?
0: So, with relation to insurance. so. Uh, So it goes back to what Dr. Shah talked about, Uh, most Americans in this country aren't even aware of their options. Uh, they're not aware of the healthcare team and all the all the players on the healthcare team. So uh, most Americans aren't aware of midwives, what we do, how we function. And as Joan said, this is a this is a question that we often have to answer. Well, what's a midwife? What's the difference? What's our training? Correct. So then, of course, then insurance companies would would not uh, be that familiar with midwives and not even have midwives as, listed and on as participants in their insurance, uh, in their insurance. So for some patients and for many insurances, we are listed. Um, Most of the major private insurances, we are listed. Again, that's part of the, uh, a part of Americans not knowing that they have options to have a midwife, that midwives are part of the team. Mm -hmm. Our philosophy of care, what do we do and how do we, how are we integrated into the healthcare system? So there's a lot of education that actually needs to occur. But as far as reimbursement, uh, for most insurances, we're reimbursed the same as physicians for the same care, except for Medicaid in this country, where we're reimbursed uh, in most states uh, around 85% to what uh, physicians get for the same services.
2: You know, um, Joan, I want to talk about one of the things that startled me, because i i I'm not a woman, I've never been pregnant, I've never had a baby, uh, My, I have a son, he's adopted, so I just haven't been through any of this. So I was startled to read that a, a woman who has a baby and then goes home from the hospital might not see a doctor for six weeks uh, and then for a 15-minute kind of catch-up visit. That just... Uh, I don't know if you heard me talking about my knee replacement earlier, but I got way more aftercare than that. Uh, Maybe you could talk about how does midwifing fill in that gap a little bit?
1: It does classically, and it does in many models that we see from other countries, such as the British midwives doing home visits. And and even in this country, many midwives who are doing home deliveries, although that's a very, very small percentage of women, have a really strong um, program of home visits after delivery. But you're absolutely right. Um, Our standard... And, and that's really set by what's reimbursed by insurance is a six-week visit. So much water is under the bridge by that time. Um, and, you know, potentially now I think that, there, that we're trending back toward um, a two-week visit. Um, I, have, I can give you a personal experience that I was always in the camp of I'm bringing this woman back in in one week and two weeks and three weeks if she needs to come back in. But more than once at my previous employer in a different state, I had my hand slapped because didn't I know that I wasn't being reimbursed? For those visits, so our care is very much shaped by uh, reimbursement and by again, kind of that that cultural um, feeling I think that we have, which is, you know, you you okay? You had a baby. Go get the groceries tomorrow, and we'll see you in six weeks. You mm-hmm. know.
2: Um, I, I also do want to talk, as I did to Neil Shah, uh, about what, but this kind of alarming not kind of, a very alarming racial disparity in terms of complications, the way they are visited in so much higher numbers uh, uh, among uh, African-American mothers. One of the nice things about having a whole lot of women running for a presidential nomination right now is like this gets injected uh, into the national conversation, maybe in a way it doesn't. So let's start with uh, Elizabeth Warren here.
1: And there is a specific problem, as you rightly identify, for women of color who are three to four times more likely to uh, die in childbirth, even after we do the adjustments for income, for education. This is true across the board. This is true for well-educated African-American women, for wealthy African-American women. And the best studies that I've seen put it down to just one thing, prejudice.
2: So, Sasha, Sasha James uh it may be able to be put down to one thing, but I think a problem this big probably has a lot of different causes that feed into it. What can you tell us about that?
0: So, <clears throat> thank you for asking the question. It does, the reason why she, and I, I get why she says uh, prejudice, it's the foundation of this. The, the history of this country and racism being uh, part of that foundation, with slavery and uh, with people of color, um, the view and the mindset of um, the country and how w- people of color were viewed, and all of that trauma tra- of coming out of that uh, that time of racism and fighting for our own rights and fighting to be seen even as human beings. So that trauma transcends through generations. Just because slavery ended, it doesn't mean that the trauma of slavery doesn't persist. And that trauma of slavery then transcends to physiological changes that you see when you have women. So that is the difference and why we're seeing so many black and brown women in this country die or suffer from severe maternal morbidities related to pregnancy. Pregnancy is a normal stressor on the body. That's the thought process that we have, but it is a stressor. If you're already being stressed because of other things in your life, such as prejudice, racism, discrimination, and you have to deal with that on a daily basis, and that is working, weathering you, then the physiologic stress of normal pregnancy could then tip you over the edge.
2: I would also imagine, Sasha, that it depends on where you're living, too. If you're living in like, okay, I'm doing this show. I'm literally across the street from a really good hospital. Uh, and uh, if I were a pregnant woman, not only would I be uh, well-situated or a, a postpartum woman, would I be well-situated to get care? But if I had a question, if I was feeling funny, there was something going on with me, I know I know a lot of doctors, you know, just as socially. Uh, I have friends of friends who are doctors. I could probably call somebody and say, you know, should I be worried about this Or whatever. If you're living uh, in, uh, you know, below the poverty line in rural Georgia, none of those things are true. I assume. Uh,
0: uh, Yes. Well, and then you have that other stress added to it. Um, But what we're really talking about is, barring all of that, living in a rural area, barring uh, taking into consideration that you live below the poverty line, we have women that are. Highly educated women of color that are wealthy, that have access to care, that have, that have access to good food, that are living luxurious lives and they're dying in childbirth. Why is it that Serena Williams would have come out and, mm-hmm. and, and have a pulmonary embolism? This is a woman that is completely physically fit and is, has access to all the health care she can in the world, things that I can't even have access to. and She has access to, and she had a pulmonary embolism, and she was the one that had to bring that to the attention of our, her own health care providers.
2: Um, I want to play another clip because, as I say, it's really good when women run for president because they just have a platform to talk about stuff that a male candidate's never going to bring up. This time it's Kamala Harris.
0: Women in the health care system must be given dignity. They must be listened to. They must be taken seriously. They must be given respect. They must be given a sense of dignity about understanding that when they tell you something, listen. When they tell you what they need, listen. They know what they need when they tell you.
1: Hear them.
2: So, Joan Kambelik, I'll just react to that.
1: Um, So respectful maternity care has been shown to be an important element of of obstetric care the world over. In fact, um, you know, unrushed caregivers who provide continuity of care and communicate effectively, things like being involved in decision-making and just basic kindness and respect are major components for women experiencing care. And I think as Sasha was just bringing up, you know, um, Serena Williams had to bring her own problem to the the forefront for uh, for her own care providers. We need to treat women with that respect for um, and give them credit for having an understanding of what's going on with their bodies and um, and when and and hearing when problems develop also you know because childbirth is kind of this normal but also emergent process that does, that's painful and difficult and really pushes women to the limit i think that we can as our as guest care providers around them can buy into the stress and strain of that moment and we can you know become for example i I recently was at a delivery with a resident and, and who, who stood on a stool to kind of yell at a woman having a, um, having a baby. And I'm just here to say there's no reason to ever stand on a stool and yell at a woman having a baby, but it, it amps everybody up, and that's something that we really need to um, tamp down and change our manner and approach that woman in a different way, and she will do better. There's a lot of research that shows that.
2: All right. Um, you know, we don't really have time to put this call on the air, but maybe it is worth just getting to really quickly here. Um, Vicki and Madison had called in and uh, wanted to talk about the uh, option of home birth. Uh, uh, maybe, I, I don't know, does either one of you want to just comment on, on when and if that's a sensible option? Sasha, you want to start?
0: Oh, so yeah, there are many home birth midwives in the United States. Uh, although home birth is it's a very small percentage of the births in the United States, but if someone is interested in having a home birth, uh, I, I would do my research. I'm not well versed in, although I know many home birth midwives. Uh, there is you have to really be screened. So there are certain candidates for home birth. There that and there's a screening process for these women. So you really can't have uh, comorbidities. Morbidities, as we would discuss, can't be a candidate with high blood pressure and diabetes, and and you would really have to be a specific candidate and screened by a midwife to have a home birth. Uh, The home birth process is completely safe. It is a wonderful and viable option for people that are really good candidates, and I do promote it for the women that are good candidates and, and, and finding a good care provider.
2: All right. So we're going to have to stop it there. Joan Kumbellick, a certified nurse midwife, a women's health research fellow at Connecticut VA System. Sasha James Connorelli, certified nurse midwife and lecturer at Yale School of Nursing. We have one more uh, facet to talk about. That is the doula, the work of the doula. We'll do that when we get back.
1: You're listening to a rebroadcast of The Colin McEnroe Show. It was originally recorded on July 31st, 2019.
2: I should tell you that uh, today's show is produced by senior producer Betsy Kaplan, a former nurse uh, that's not insignificant uh We are as usual lucky to have Kyle and Wolf uh, on the board making the show sound good. Our intern and phone operator today uh, is Carolyn McCusker. We've just discovered by the way that Carolyn McCusker knows how to make boats uh, she can make a custom boat for you if you'd like to get in touch with the station she'd be happy to make you your own small your own custom boat. she has not actually made one since eighth grade so You know, just factor that in and obviously try to lowball around price. Um, So I also want to quickly mention that if you know somebody who's very concerned about all this stuff and you heard this terrific show today about maternal mortality and morbidity and alternatives to it and uh, other ways to uh, handle pregnancy and childbirth and they just didn't hear it, uh, you can subscribe to and get even previous podcasts and stuff like that through any podcasting service, whether it's your Apple podcast app on your iPhone or Stitcher or Spotify or Podbrush. I just made that up. There is no platform called Podbrush. Uh, But anywhere that you can get podcasts. And you can also just get on wnpr.org slash Colin. All of our shows are there. You can play the audio. All right. So we're now going to talk about doulas. I was I gave a speech of a couple of years ago at the Connecticut Hospital Association, and I was out in the lobby of this big kind of convention, and these two women came up to me and said, we're doulas, and I said, oh, you're doulas, and of course, I, don't, I didn't really know what that meant, but I was too chicken to admit uh, my ignorance, but we're going to find out a lot more about that right now from our guest, uh, Melissa Duenas, uh, birth doula, doula and founder of Birth Tribe. First of all, did I pronounce your last name correctly?
4: You did. It's Dwayne, yes. We're okay. Very close.
2: A duane, yes. Okay. Um, so tell us what a doula is. A doula is not a midwife. Uh, what's the difference?
4: No, and I think that's the biggest misconception. When I tell somebody I'm a doula, they're always like, oh, like a midwife, but we're different. So midwives have medical training, and during the birth process, they focus mostly on the delivery of a healthy baby. Where doulas focus on the needs of the birthing person and the other parents, and we offer mental, physical, and emotional support during pregnancy, the birth and postpartum. So you've talked a lot today about, you know, the postpartum piece and people um, who have just had babies not being seen by providers until six weeks postpartum and doulas are sort of the gap there. Uh, We're usually seeing people within a couple days of their birth um, and staying in contact with them out their postpartum
2: period. And, and let's say that you saw um, a mother within two or three days uh, of that birth. What would you be doing? What, uh, what Are you checking vital signs? Are you doing psychological counseling? What what What's the visit like?
4: No, so doulas don't stereotypically do anything medical like vital signs. Okay. However, there are red flags for things. So, uh, for instance, last year I had a client who was six days postpartum. I went and saw her and she was complaining about a headache and she had said that she assumed the headache was from just having a baby, being dehydrated, being sleep deprived, but she also had a lot of swelling. And so those things that we, you know, those two things are really big signs of, of preeclampsia, which can also happen postpartum. And I asked her if she had called her uh, midwife, this particular woman, a midwife, and she said, no, you know, they're just going to want to come in and check me and I'd have to pack up the baby. And she had a toddler and she didn't want to do any of that. And I urged her to do it, and she did have that, and she ended up having to be checked back into the hospital for four days to be treated for it. so I think those are the things that are being missed, and in a lot of cases, that woman might not have been seen for weeks and weeks and weeks or until it became an emergency
2: um, and, you know it almost so goes back so to the yeah, it almost goes back to the Kamala Harris quote the uh, clip that we played, except that this woman didn 't even really think that she had a right to bring this up or at least that the disadvantages of bringing up you know a potentially significant symptom outweighed the advantages of of getting it dealt with so it does seem as though as you do these visits one of the things you have to do i guess is is to get the person to understand that she's got to take care of herself
4: and i think that's the the biggest part of a doula is is most of us are seeing people you know at the beginning of their pregnancy all the way through we have a full continuity of care and so there's a trust there Mm -hmm. it's really different and we know their spouses you know most Um, spouses, partners, dads are not going to OBGYN appointments and meeting the doctors. But for us, we're going into their homes. We're doing home visits prenatally and postpartum. And so the spouses know us and are comfortable too. So a lot of times they'll see flags, things like postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. Those are things that often are pointed out to us by the spouse who just doesn't know what to do or where to go. And we can have the resources to help in those instances too, um, and so, yeah, there's, you know, even if they have support, local family support, a lot of times they those people don't know where to go either.
2: Um, uh, I, I keep asking this question on the show today, but I'll ask it uh, about you. Uh, what's the relationship between, between medical insurance and doulas?
4: So there really isn't one. Um, occasionally we might get reimbursed, but most of the cost of a doula is paid for out of pocket by parents. Um, sometimes families can be reimbursed. Um, you know, if we help to avoid certain things like cesareans and epidurals, then we kept the cost low for the insurance company, but those are very far and few between. And you're at, and the person has to fight for that reimbursement, which can also be really difficult because they've just had a baby and that's not what their, you know, biggest concern is, right?
2: Right. You know, we, we've used this term a bunch of times and it's a term people throw around all the time. Postpartum depression. You also mentioned postpartum anxiety. I think a lot of us, but probably especially men, think, OK, yeah, so you had a baby. Now you're a little bit sad. You know, you'll get over it. Yeah, um, yeah you're sighing. So tell me what that sigh means.
4: You know, the OBGYN at the top of the hour mentioned, like, that lack of social support that doesn't exist anymore, that, you know, it, that existed when my mother had me, you know, knowing the neighbors and, um, you know, having those kinds of support because people leave their houses. And now, you know, people just sort of find things out on the Internet or Google their questions. And so doulas change that. You know, doulas really can offer that support and, and you know, help people to find a community for themselves so that they are being cared for you know not just by their provider but by others too
2: another reason you're sighing i think is because one of the reasons you became a doula was because you went through postpartum depression correct
4: yeah i had a traumatic birth experience and postpartum um depression as well and it's very isolating you know he mentioned that part of it is that you're sort of stuck at home and you don't have anywhere to go or to turn to and you're thinking there's something wrong with me everyone's telling you that this should be the best part of your life and sometimes it isn't. There's a, so much transition and so many things going on um, that, you know, we're, we're not catching it. And if you're not seeing your provider for six weeks, oftentimes postpartum depression, anxiety is starts around two weeks and is at its peak at a month um, and can continue on. Sometimes the onset can be many months down the road. And if you saw your provider one time at six weeks, um, you know, they're missing those things. And people aren't telling their providers either. There's not a trust. Some people have fear that their providers will want to you know take their baby or those kinds of things because they're in this psychological cycle that doesn't always make sense.
2: Um, now that you're a doula, I understand that would still mean that uh, having a child, you would probably um, uh, you would uh, get the, obtain the, the services of another doula, right?
4: Absolutely. Do, we you know, do, We say doulas, doula. you know, other doulas all the time. Lots of the word doula. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many things, you know, it's the same thing. Like as a, if you were a therapist, not a therapist, still see therapists. And it's the same with doulas. Like you are not able to watch yourself in the same way. Um, and you think that you have the education, but there's so many different pieces and being sleep deprived, having just had a vaginal birth or having had a major surgery, there's still so many things that sometimes you're not taking care of yourself well enough at no parenting, um, and so having someone else watch you is equal as important regardless if you have the education background or not.
2: Um, all right, well I, we're sort of out of time here, so uh, but I want to thank you so much, Melissa Duenas, uh, birth doula and founder of Birth Tribe. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And I once again want to encourage people, just because this is one of these shows that you know, maybe our regular audience, the people who listen to us every day, or close to that, wouldn't. Uh, there might be a, a people who aren't part of that cohort who would be concerned about this or want to know a little bit more about it. So uh, I do want to encourage you to direct your friends who didn't hear this show. They can just go on wnpr.org. You can click to find the Colin McEnroe show, or go on wnprorg Colin. You can find all the shows that we do, but this will be at the top of the list as of today, uh, and. The the audio is right there you can just play the audio right there on your laptop or you can subscribe to us uh, on a podcasting service like Spotify uh, or uh, or your Apple podcast or Stitcher. All right, thanks very much to everybody who worked on this show and helped out today and we'll be back tomorrow with something new.